Keep Talking exists to have conversations that might help to make a better society and a better culture. I believe that each guest has important information and stories to make public. This is the Keep Talking podcast. To support it, please take a second and subscribe to the show. It helps to make this content possible. The following is a conversation with Ed Hagen. Ed Hagen is a professor of anthropology at Washington State University, Vancouver. During our conversation, Ed talks about the evolutionary reasons for two of humanity's most common mental illnesses, anxiety and depression. He also talks about psychic pain, the correlation between grip strength and depression, hypervigilance and anxiety, differences in suicide rates between men and women, and suicide attempts being an honest signal of need. Ed has noted that depression is commonly intertwined with social conflict and is a legitimate indication of a threat to one's biological fitness. Millions suffer every day from a poor or an intolerable psychological state. Ed's work and his original ideas are a potential corrective to the common view that psychological ill health is due primarily to a chemical imbalance. He encourages us to look deeper, to take a more comprehensive look, and to use an evolutionary lens to begin to try to both understand and help alleviate unnecessary suffering. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Ed Hagen. Ed, thank you so much for making time to do this. We were talking a little bit before we recorded. I'm fascinated by your work. It's really wonderful to meet you. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Glad to be here. Me too. Um, I'd love to start. I want to get into the details of uh, you know, the specific topics of mental health, which is something I'd love to you know, focus on today and I think is a, obviously a very important subject. But before I do, I would love to maybe get the background story as to how you became who you are. What's the background interest in evolutionary psychology and the human mind? How do you make sense of that story for yourself? Yeah. So when I was a... Um undergrad in college at Berkeley in the 1980s. I, um, I was in physics, I was in math, I was a math major. And I realized I really wasn't that interested in math or physics. But I didn't know that was my identity. I was always the math geek, the physics geek, the computer geek. Uh, so my loss of interest in that topic or those topics was really distressing. Like, what am I, what the hell am I going to do if I'm not the math guy or the physics guy? Um, so I started talking to just a lot of people, my friends at college, and I discovered that um, they had real problems. <laughs> uh, so they were, many of them were very depressed or even suicidal. Uh, because they were, you know, and I was, you know, I was really distressed by, you know, my loss of it, you know, by picking the wrong major, basically. And yeah. I thought, you know, uh, if I'm this distressed about just uh, picking the wrong major, what about what about people with real, real problems? Um, so I just started talking to folks, as I mentioned, and indeed, um, I found out that people did have really serious problems of you know, sexual abuse or physical abuse or abandonment or all kinds of, of things that I'd never had to deal with at all. And many of them, of course, as I mentioned, were really depressed. And at that time in the 1980s was the ascendance of Prozac and 
chemical imbalance model and biological psychiatry. And I just didn't buy it. Hmm. Um, I saw that the distress that my friends were going through was linked to real adversity in their lives. It wasn't, it really couldn't be explained as some dysfunction in their brains. As hmm. far as I could tell, I, I felt it really, but I didn't at the same time, it wasn't clear to me as, you know, an 18 year old, or 20 year old, what the heck was actually going on. But I decided that I really wanted to devote my life to figuring out what really was going on and much to get a better model, a better understanding, a better scientific explanation of the distress of these folks in response to genuine life adversity. So that was kind of what started me off on that project. And I just started reading like crazy, just reading, you know, just go to the library and look at whatever books were on the new book cart and any of that seemed relevant, philosophy, anthropology, linguistics, uh, theory of mind, philosophy, and I just was became a voracious reader uh, trying to, A, tackle this problem and also figure out what the heck I was going to do with my life. Um, and it gradually coalesced, I kind of put together a very crude version of what today would be called evolutionary psychology, but I figured there had to be some kind of underlying human nature to our cognitive processes and our emotional processes, and that it had to be grounded in our evolution somehow. Um, and that I knew this one little fact from a random course I had taken <laughs> that uh, our transition to agriculture was really quite recent that we'd spent most of our evolutionary history as hunter gatherers. So I figured, well, who studies hunter gatherers? Well, mm -hmm. anthropologists do. Mm -hmm. uh, so I thought, you know, I really need to start studying hunter gatherers and kind of understand them to begin to get a handle on what our evolved human nature might be. And this was all very crude. Nothing is as sophisticated as other people had already kind of put together, but I didn't know that. But I just knew I should, I really needed to take a pan-human long look at um, at humans to begin to get a handle on why severe adversity would, would bring on this kind of severe psychological distress. So that's kind of my origin story. You know, and if you you know, it, it sounds like part of that story is not buying the common narrative at that time, which I think is still around that, you know, depre real depression and real anxiety are a chemical imbalance that can be corrected with, I think you mentioned Prozac. If you didn't buy that story, what was the story, if one came about that you began to more buy into? Well, that's a good question. And I didn't know, but I, I, what I saw in, in my friends is that they were really struggling with real life problems. And somehow I figured that their distress, the psychological distress uh, and anguish that they were going through was somehow had the goal or purpose of solving those problems. Hmm. Now, how that would work, I had, I had no idea, but I, I, I could tell they were really struggling to really deal with their problems and somehow resolve them. So that was my underlying assumption that what the kind of mainstream model was identifying as a chemical imbalance was actually an effort to resolve um, and somehow mitigate severe life adversity. But exactly how that would have worked and, and what the story was, I had no idea, but I was resolved to 
to try and figure it out. Yeah. And I know I've heard you speak about this in other interviews that, you know, over time there was more of a, more clarity or at least more of a potential hypothesis about what might be happening with serious depression, serious anxiety. And my, my understanding is that it's related to biological fitness. And I wonder if you might be able to clue the listeners in as to what you mean by that. Yeah. So when we look at all of our, um, if we kind of look from the neck down, if you will, um, science has made tremendous progress in understanding how our bodies work. So our circulatory system, we figured out a few hundred years ago, the heart is a pump. That was a major discovery. It took thousands of years to figure that out, but we finally did. Uh, the eye is a camera. Um, our digestive system, our lungs absorb oxygen. So we really had this tremendous success in understanding the functionality of our physiology, much of it, not all of it, but much of it. And our mainstream framework for understanding how those parts, those functional parts came about is evolution by natural selection. And as many of your listeners might know, evolution by natural selection um, is based on the idea that there's heritable variation um, and that some variants, uh, individuals with some uh, variants outreproduce uh, individuals with other variants, and then those variants spread in the population. And that's roughly what we mean by biological fitness, that these are heritable traits that increase an organism's ability to survive and reproduce. So it's really focused when we look, think about our functionality, it's all about survival or reproduction. Uh, so we have reproductive organs, we have survival organs, immune systems. And it's, uh, we don't have, um, you know, things like iPods that evolved. We don't have functions. That, there are all kinds of functions that, that might do other things, but we don't have them. They're all focused on survival and reproduction. Um, so that's what we mean by biological fitness. The um, traits, functions, um, mechanisms that over evolutionary time increase the ability um, of our ancestors to survive and reproduce in the environments in which they're living. So that's kind of one of the key insights of this evolutionary approach. It really forces you to think, what's the connection between our physiology and then also our psychology and the environments that our ancestors were dealing with? So if you think about the lungs, they are precisely structured to maximize absorption of a relatively low concentration of oxygen in the atmosphere uh, and transfer that into the blood. And that function explains why lungs have the functions that they do. It's that connection between our physiology and uh, some environmental challenge like absorbing oxygen or fighting pathogens or whatever it might be. And so the discipline that I'm in, evolutionary psychology, proposes that the same thing's going on with our psychology, that we have psychological mechanisms whose structure is explained by the nature of the environment that we evolved in and what kinds of things we needed to be able to do in those environments to, to survive and reproduce. Hmm. So I don't, I don't know if that answers your question, but... I, th I think it does. And I think it might be helpful to define... You know, I know we'll probably spend a lot of this conversation speaking about depression and anxiety, and I wonder if it might be helpful just to define, you know, in your mind, what you mean by those two words. Yeah, so I accept, uh, and my main focus is on depression, but depression often occurs with anxiety, so we can touch on that a, a little bit as well. Um, but I, I accept the way that mainstream psychiatry has defined it. So there are two 
key symptom. So it's a symptom-based approach. This approach was introduced in about 1980 with the what's called the DSM-3. So the DSM is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. It's kind of the Bible for uh, psychiatry um, and psychiatric research. And it sets out a, a list, uh, a large number of um, disorders, quote unquote, based on basically symptom profiles. And so for depression, um, there's a small number of symptoms that are considered diagnostic for depression. The main one is sadness or low mood or depressed mood, basically, um, that an individual needs to be suffering uh, all day or, or most all day for, uh, for about two weeks or more. And then a second major symptom would be loss of interest in, in most activities, uh, again, for at least two weeks. And then there are a handful of optional symptoms like um, insomnia or hypersomnia, sleeping too little or too much, undereating, overeating, um, agitation, psychomotor retardation or um, agitation, um, and suicidality, thoughts of death, for example. And so basically, you tally up uh, those symptoms, and if you cross a certain threshold of experiencing um, a certain number of symptoms uh, almost every day for two weeks, you are diagnosed as being depressed or having a major depressive episode. Hmm. So it's that kind of brief symptom. And, that, and virtually all research on depression has taken place using a definition like that or something very, very similar. Um, usually there's kind of a... Uh, there's different kinds of depression instruments, we call them. They're basically questionnaires that folks answer, um, possibly administered by a therapist or a psychotherapist or a psychiatrist um, or some professional that can kind of probe uh, your answers. So it's it's those symptoms. And the ones that I take as really core for my approach are the sadness and low mood and the loss of interest. Um, those really characterize depression in most cases. Hmm. And I know this is kind of a basic question, but why would those symptoms be enacted or realized following, and you've used this word a couple of times already in this conversation, following life adversity, serious life adversity? Why is it that the human animal, often when they are depressed, have the, the symptoms you just described be triggered? What is it about it that, from your perspective, makes sense from an evolutionary psychology and evolutionary perspective? Yeah, and that's that's the exact right question, because mainstream psychiatry doesn't offer an answer to that question. It really doesn't ask why, why those symptoms. Um, it kind of takes those as a given. But the approach of myself and, and a few others who've taken an evolutionary approach to depression, that's exactly the question that we're asking. What's the logic there? Is there any logic? Um, and the approach that I think is the best one is one that makes a close analogy with physical pain. And it's called the psychological pain hypothesis. And one of the earliest um, proponents of this was Randy Thornhill uh, back in the 80s, wrote a, a few papers on this. But since then, many others have taken a very similar approach, including myself. Hmm. And the idea is to, to think about why do we suffer physical pain? 
So if you break your ankle or break a leg or get a, um, a cut or a wound or an injury or burn, um, it hurts. And that physical pain is very aversive. Uh, we don't like it. We want it to go away. Um, it's disabling. If you break your ankle, um, you can't do a lot of fundamental things, walk around, maybe even too painful to sleep, um, hard to do any of normal life activities. So why, and yet, it's clear that this is an adaptation, something that is evolved. We have special receptors for physical pain. Um, and the logic here is that physical pain, if you break your ankle, uh, number one, you need to know that you broke your ankle. Mm. So physical pain is letting you know that something bad has happened. Um, and why do you need to know that? Well, first of all, you need to stop doing whatever you were doing that caused the injury. Don't exacerbate that injury. Um, so stop your activities. Uh, you don't want to make the broken ankle worse. So stop walking on that broken ankle. Um, what do you need? You need to begin to address. What can I do to begin to help my ankle to heal? So you need to begin to take actions of staying off your ankle, getting people to help you. Um, physical pain is motivating all of that reflection and changes in behavior that you need to respond to the broken ankle to uh, make your ankle heal more rapidly and not increase the damage to your ankle. And it also stimulates, um, in addition to you know focusing your attention on this injury, there's very likely, uh, and we have a lot of evidence for this, learning process. Whatever you did, whatever dumb thing you did to break your ankle, don't do that. Yeah. Don't do that again. Um, so physical pain has all of these evolved functions. So despite its aversiveness, um, people who didn't suffer pain, and we actually have evidence of this, actually um, there are rare mutations um, that in some folks that uh, prevent them from actually experiencing physical pain. And they tend to have short lives. They, they don't respond properly to all the kinds of injuries that are, you know, part and parcel of, of being a human. Hmm. So psychological pain is analogous to this. When something bad happens, like, for example, your wife leaving you or your husband leaving you or someone close to you dying or getting fired from your job, um, you need to know that something bad has happened. Just as when you break your ankle, you need to know that something bad has happened. So the first hypothesis is that the sadness or low mood or depressed mood is indicating that something that would have had a very negative impact on your ability to survive and reproduce has just happened and you need to deal with it somehow. So think about uh, a spouse leaving you. That's really bad for your reproduction. Um, it's one of the worst things that can happen when it comes to your reproduction. So you need to pay attention to that. Think about a child dying. That's extremely bad for your reproduction. Um, you need to really start to pay attention to that. Uh, in the modern context, losing a job is bad, but that's analogous to losing your access to resources, uh, your ability to buy food and pay your rent. Uh, over evolutionary times, similar things would have been extremely bad for your biological fitness. So the sadness uh, and low mood that characterizes depression, its function is almost certainly very similar to physiological pain. Focus your attention on something that has just happened that's really bad for your fitness. Begin to think about what you can do to ameliorate that, to mitigate that. 
Um, can you get your wife or your husband to come back? Um, can you get your job back? Can you find another job? Um, really beginning to focus your, your attention on the problem and figure out how to solve that problem. And then also learn what can you do to avoid similar circumstances. Maybe you won't be able to get your wife to come back, but you can maybe get another mate in the future and don't make the same mistakes with them as you made with your first mate. So there's, a, there's undoubtedly a learning process going along with that. So those would be, I think, the foundation, a foundational approach to uh, a different evolutionary approach to depression is beginning to see how some of these major symptoms would actually have helped people address the adversity that they're in. And the evidence is overwhelming that the, the large majority of depression cases are caused by genuine adversity. They don't just come out of the blue. Now, there is a small fraction that do, but the, the large majority do not. They're caused by genuine um, adverse circumstances, physical assault, sexual assault, loss of a partner, death of a loved one. Um, and the, the low mood that is the core feature of depression really has a very plausible adaptive function in those contexts, in those situations. It sounds to me like in that description, it is a corrective mechanism built into the human animal to wake you up, to sober you, to learn from these adverse moments that you just articulated. And I know I've heard you speak about this, and I think maybe to bring it home, if you're open to it, I would love for you to share the story I've heard you tell about your own mom. And as I understand it, her reaction, I think, to the death of your father and what happened with your own health related to that. Yeah. So my dad died of colon cancer uh, many years ago now, and my mom became pretty depressed, understandably. And she began to really ruminate heavily on what she had missed. Um, because my dad was one of these kind of stoic Norwegian guys that wouldn't go to the doctor no matter what. And my mom was just kept thinking, what, you know, could she have noticed something that had some symptoms that she had missed and forced him to go to the doctor sooner when there might have still been some ability to, to deal with the cancer before it had spread too far. And um, she was, you know, reading about it and thinking about it, but also really, really um, depressed about the whole thing, but through her um, anguish over my father's death, she began to really talk to a lot of family members and discovered that several other male members on my dad's side of the family had also died mm. of colon cancer. And colon cancer is one of these things that can be quite heritable, run in families, and sure enough, it was running in my dad's family, although we didn't know it uh, prior to my dad's death. Um, so when my mom learned these things, and she was undoubtedly really motivated to to learn this due to her depressed mood over my father's death, that was really just forcing her to think about it over and over and over. So she began to really bug me to go get <laughs> checked out. Uh, and I was quite dismissive for a long time because, of course, it involves a colonoscopy and nobody <laughs> nobody wants to go through a colonoscopy. So I put it off. I put it off. Uh, but she kept pestering me and pestering me. And finally I said, okay, mom, I'll go do it. And I went and got a colonoscopy. And sure enough, they found a big polyp. Um, and I actually remember coming out of the um, anesthesia and 
the doctor saying, well, we found a large polyp and there's about a 10% chance that it's cancerous, but we'll let you know. So, and they removed it and it turned out to have not been cancerous, but was of the type that could have easily become cancerous. So although my mom couldn't save my dad's life, she might've saved my life. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. There, I, I know we've focused mostly on um, depression so far in the conversation. And I, I wonder if it, if it might be helpful for people too, to give some space to anxiety and you know, I'd love to hear from your vantage point, from your evolutionary lens, your best guess or best take, uh, as you currently understand it, as to what anxiety is and and why it exists. It, this is another, it seems like, extraordinarily common uh, experience for for human beings. And I, I'd love to give you some time to to speak about that. Yeah. So anxiety and depression are really what we call comorbid. They often occur together. So folks. Um, that are diagnosed with depression often have a lot of symptoms of anxiety and folks who are diagnosed with severe anxiety often have symptoms of depression and um, anxiety is probably vigilance against threats again mm. people are anxious about the kinds of things that could cause them so in my mom's case just to go back to my own example she became very anxious that I might have, you know, colon cancer, um, and she wasn't going to miss miss it a second time. Um, and so that's what we see again in folks with anxiety is that they are focused on the kinds of things that over evolutionary history really could have had a really negative impact on their ability to survive and reproduce social threats, people that are your enemies, um, adversities at work, your possibility that you might get fired. Um, environmental threats, threats from dangerous animals. Um, and so in anxiety, it looks like it's really um, vigilance towards the kinds of things that could have really caused us harm and that we need to avoid. And of course, in modern environments, the kinds of things that would have threatened us during our evolutionary history might no longer do so. So people might have anxieties about spiders or snakes um, and those of us living in the United States, very few of us, uh, very, very few of us are going to suffer any serious injury from a spider or a snake. But over our evolutionary history, those are venomous animals that often could have inflicted relatively severe injuries. In fact, in rural areas of the world today, uh, a lot of people still buy, uh, die from snake bite. Um, it's one of the major causes of death, actually, in the world still today. Um, and spider bites can cause you know severe allergic reactions and so forth so things that might seem kind of irrational to us uh living in an urban you know american environment would have been quite rational and in fact i'm an anthropologist i've been working in rural areas um and one of the women in one of the field sites that i worked with got bitten by um, one of the dangerous spiders there and had a, an extremely strong anaphylactic shock and they had to tired of the back of a motorcycle and, and drive about um, you know 20 miles to the nearest clinic to try and and she was completely unconscious mm -hmm. so it just kind of shows that in a, in a more in the kinds of environments in which we evolve these things could have really been really really deadly threats uh, and even today still often are so that would be kind of the standard evolutionary one that I think is really a pretty plausible evolutionary approach to to anxiety is vigilance against 
um, threats to our survival and reproduction. And there does seem to be, like with depression, as I hear you give that explanation, a protective component to both depression and anxiety, that there is a sort of logic to both experiences, yet you know, it, it sounds like you have experience with this in your own life. If you meet somebody who is chronically depressed or majorly depressed or has extreme anxiety, this is a deeply troubled person. And it's difficult for, for them to live a flourishing life. And I, I, I have to ask from your perspective, what's the healthy balance of both of those components to a human life and and maybe more importantly what would be your tips for people who are experiencing major major depression or you know the hypervigilance the the extreme anxiety to try to work through that so that their their minds are not quite as at war with themselves as they might tend to be well the first thing i would say is everything i'm saying here is kind of cutting edge and none of it's been proven. So don't listen to me. Uh, listen to your doctor, listen to your therapist. Uh, I'm not offering um, a cure-all. Um, I'm not offering advice for folks actually in this situation. This is uh, a scientific hypothesis that still needs a lot of testing. And I think uh, a mistake a lot of folks have made is to try and rush too quickly from theories into applications and clinical practice. And um, this stuff is not ready for prime time. If you find it personally useful, great, but don't take anything I'm saying as um, solid science at this point. It's it's really um, still very much in the testing phase hmm. and it's gonna take a while to, to figure out if, if we're on the right track or not. Um, so that's, that's caveat number one. Um, the second part I would say is, um, There are, you know, every, you're right, you know, we, the, the perspective that I'm outlining here is very much one that these are, are protective mechanisms that really evolve to protect us from dangerous situations. Um, but every mechanism can malfunction. So, you know, you can have a heart attack, you can have immune disorders, um, physiology, you know, you can have problems with your vision, problems with your hearing, mm-hmm. um, problems with digestion. So some of these emotional mechanisms may also malfunction. So I think a small fraction of the cases of depression and anxiety probably do represent genuine disorders where the mechanism is firing when it shouldn't. Um, and I would say that that might apply to, you know, maybe 10% of the of the clinical cases. So everything that's diagnosed as major depression or anxiety disorder or major depressive disorder, I would say 90% of those, 80 to 90% of those are probably not really disorders, but 10% of them might be. So that's mm-hmm. that's, a, that's another second caveat to keep in mind. Um, I've had people contact me after uh, some of my previous um, discussions on this and say, you know, I hear what you're saying, but it really doesn't seem to apply to me and, and they may well be correct. Um, the third thing I would say is, my own approach has really looked at some of these really severe depressive symptoms like profound loss of interest where you can't even get out of bed um, or thoughts of death we haven't really touched on that suicidality that that seems mm-hmm. about just about the opposite of what you should do um, to solve a problem to survival and reproduction is to consider killing yourself it's it's really um, and so what I have proposed and, and some of my colleagues is that there's a signaling component here as well. So if you get a physical injury, sometimes you can deal with that on your own. 
but a lot of times you can't, you need help. And we have evolved signals for physical pain. People cry, scream, they have facial expressions that really signal to others that uh, they're in distress and need help. And I think the same would be true with a lot of the kinds of adversity that we see in depression, that these are often problems that people cannot solve on their own. They need help. Um, if you are uh, in a situation where you're being physically abused or sexually abused, um, you may not have the ability to protect yourself. You may need help uh, from other people to for protection uh, to get you out of that situation. Um, if you've been, if someone close to you has died, like in my mom's case, just to go back to her case, when my dad died, my my parents had a really traditional relationship in many ways. My mom, they had a division of labor. Um, and then my dad did all of the sort of maintenance around the house, the auto maintenance. Uh, he pumped the gas. My mom didn't even know how to pump gas. So when my dad died, there was just tons of things that she didn't know how to do. I had to you know, teach her how to pump gas and do all the kind of basic things around the house that my dad had done. But I was in grad school at the time and I couldn't you know, just quit school to help my mom and who was gonna help her. So this death really put her in a hard place where she didn't have anybody to do all the kinds of things that needed to be done on a daily basis. Um, and she eventually, figured it out, but it took a lot of work. And that's the situation with many, many people facing adversity that um, if somebody dies um, or they've been fired, um, they're going to need help getting back on their feet. And so that's uh, where we have some of these really severe symptoms, I think, is that they're signaling, these are what we call credible signals of need. Um, these are ways of credibly signaling that you're, you're not fooling around here, you, you really need help. And that's uh, I think one of the things that at least my approach might offer that we don't see in the mainstream case is the mainstream approach to depression is we've got to reduce your symptoms and get you, you know, and, and my approach would be no, we have to solve real social problems that you're really having. So don't, don't worry about the symptoms, worry about solving these genuine social problems, these, these genuine social adversities that people are experiencing and realize that in many cases they can't solve them on their own that they're going to need help. And a therapist often isn't in a position to do that. They are not, uh, you know, a member of your real social network. Mm. Um, you know, is a therapist going to come and teach my mom how to pump gas or do all the kind of, you know, home maintenance kind of handyman stuff that my dad did? No. Um, she needed to find real people in the real world that could really help her solve those problems or learn how to solve them on her own. Um, and that's that's the missing piece here, I think, is that um, it's not easy. If it was easy to solve these problems, uh, we would have solved them a long time ago. People are, are suffering um, adversities that are not easy to often solve. Um, and our focus needs to be on ways to to help them solve those real problems rather than just trying to suppress their symptoms. And this is a quote I've heard you say before, which I think alludes to what you just mentioned, which is that depression is intertwined with social conflict and, you know, from your vantage point, obviously it's going to be different for every person who's experiencing, you know, severe anxiety or depression, but in the, in attempting to resolve those social conflicts, what in general, you know, do you as a you know framework or uh, kind of a high level piece of wisdom or, or advice, would you typically, you know, provide to people who are really struggling with anxiety and depression that is indeed rooted in this kind of social conflict that you, uh, you've alluded to. 
Yeah, one thing, again, you know, with the caveat, this is, <laughs> this is a hypothesis, but if I'm right, uh, recognize that there are genuine conflicts of interest that are not easy to solve. And this is, this is why this is not a cure-all. Um, this is not an easy fix. Um, I'm not offering any easy solutions here. There are really, you know, if your spouse leaves you, there's no easy solution to that. Yeah. Um, you know, she left and leaving was in her interest. She's leaving you because uh, the marriage isn't working for her or the relationship isn't working for her. Um, and it was working for you. And that's a genuine conflict of interest. And there's no easy way to solve that. So, and I think this is one of the, the areas that's very well established for both, for especially for depression, that depression is deeply intertwined with social conflict. Um, it's often um, marital conflict or, you know, uh, divorce. Again, you know, kind of on its face, a source of conflict or getting fired from your job. There's a conflict. Um, and these conflicts are not easy to resolve because it's genuinely interest of one party to take the actions they did and not in the interests of the other party. But even things like death of a loved one, again, to return to the case of my mom, she needed all this help and she began to really heavily lean on her neighbors to, to do all kinds of things for her, which they were willing to do in the short term, but not in the long term. And it began to create conflict um, and friction with the neighbors when she kept you know, calling them to, mm -hmm. to do stuff for her that she couldn't do. Um, and it took a lot of time to kind of resolve that conflict, teach her how to, you know, find a handyman or repair person on her own and pay for it. You know, she'd never had to pay for these things. Um, you have to budget for that now. Hmm. So even the death of a loved one, which might not seem to involve conflict, can um, really generate conflicts because um, that person really provided a lot of benefits. And now those benefits aren't there anymore and you still need them. So the advice would be recognize that. <laughs> recognize that you are dealing with often in many cases, if you are suffering depression or anxiety, think, you know, there may be genuine conflicts here that aren't easy to solve uh, and are going to take a lot of work on your part and maybe on the part of others to, to resolve. Uh, and, and social partners, if you're dealing with somebody who's depressed, uh, Realize that if you really want to help them, you may have to make some hard changes. Um, you may have to make some concessions that you don't want to make uh, in order to move forward. Um, and once you recognize that you're going to have to do that, um, you may be able to begin to kind of make some of those hard choices that can improve things. At least that would be the implications of, of what I'm saying here. I have to imagine you've given some thought to, you know, and I, I love that, you know, you tend to ground things in an evolutionary framework and have, you know, tried to learn from hunter gatherers as much as you can. That that's something I certainly have tried to adopt in my own thinking in the last few years, but in terms of modern, you know, Western life, and I'm, I'm sure you've seen the data on the increase in, you know, especially in young girls, their instances of major depression and suicidality um and where that is all coming from and and maybe the advice you might have for um you know young people who are dealing with depression and anxiety that seem to be afflicting them from modernity uh from new technologies and new ways of living that really were not part of 
human life for the vast majority of our evolutionary history. What what would you say to them uh, in terms of guidance or advice? Is it as simple as getting off your goddamn screen? Is it something else? How do you think about those problems specifically? Yeah. Well, first of all, again, I want to reiterate my caveat. I can't, I'm not giving advice. Here. I'm, I'm kind of laying out a, a new scientific approach to these things that's, that's unproven. Um, you're welcome to kind of think about it and see if it applies to your situation. Um, the last thing I want to do is encourage you to, to, to necessarily do any of these things um, because we don't know if, if my approach is the correct one. That said, I would say a couple things. First of all, there uh, for decades now, there's been this claims or fears that depression rates are increasing. And really, if you look at the long range, they've been pretty stable over the long term. They, yes, they go up and down. And if you go from one country to another, one population to another, they might be higher, they might be lower. But it's really not the case that there's been this long-term increase in depression rates, as far as we can tell. Um, mm -hmm. They've been roughly stable. Now, that said, it does look like um, in the last half dozen years or so, there has been this increase, especially in young women in depressive symptoms. And the problem with figuring out what's going on there is that increase, if it's real, and it might be, is confounded with everything that's happened in the last, and a lot of things have happened. <laughs> There's been a lot of changes. And so which of those changes are actually the cause of that increase, if the increase is in fact real, is tough to say. We've had a pandemic. We have an explosion of new, you know, social media technologies. We have increasing warnings about climate change. We have increased populism in the U.S. with the rise of Trump and the right wing. We have increased polarization. Um, we have all of the kind of quote unquote woke stuff. Mm -hmm. So which of all these changes in American society are leading to this uptick in American rates uh, in this particular segment of the demographic. It's really tough to, to disentangle what these young women are keying into and what their what their lives are like right now. So I, I don't have a clear picture. I have been watching this issue. Um, I've seen some evidence that similar patterns are not happening elsewhere necessarily, even though social media is basically present everywhere. The pandemic was present everywhere populism and polarization are kind of problems in many, many different places. So it's not clear um, whether some of these causes that are pretty widespread globally these days are really the cause. Um, I think a lot more work needs to be done. Um, so I don't know, I guess I, I'm still in the, uh, in the don't know camp here of, what, of what's actually going on. Yeah. I, I know that, um, you know, one of the things that I've heard you speak about too, and you, you've mentioned, uh, suicidality in private, in previous interviews and in, in this conversation as well. And, you know, I wrote this quote down that I heard you say that a suicide or a suicide attempt, a suicide attempt is an honest signal of need. And you alluded to this earlier that it's, um, it's a, it's a real signal or a, a credible signal in many ways that this person is in need of attention and assistance. And I've, I've heard you mention, which I had never heard before that 
generally speaking in men, suicide attempts are, there are nine suicide attempts for every one successful quote unquote, actual death from suicide. And in women, it's a hundred to one. Um, in young which, women. Yeah. And young it, men and young women. Yeah. In young men and young women. And, you know, I have to bring up your, um, your commentary on strength the correlation between strength and depression. And I, I learned that it's really grip strength that specifically, as I understand it, is what you are referencing there. And I believe the way you put it in the past is grip, straight, grip, grip strength is a great measure of one's ability to resolve conflicts in your interest. And I'd love to give you some space to talk about the, it seems like indirect correlation between strength and depression and anything else that you think is relevant or interesting and important to know about physical prowess, physical strength, and depression specifically. Yeah. So this, these, both these topics, the suicidality and the strength factors relate to conflict. And, I, and if there's one thing I really want to focus on in my sort of unique evolutionary approach to depression is the importance of, of social conflict in many, many, many cases of depression and the kinds of conflicts that are very difficult to resolve, like marital conflicts and partners leaving you and getting fired and deaths of important social partners that, that lead to conflict. And um, conflict is a key theme in evolutionary biology that uh, recognized from Darwin on forward that um, organisms evolve uh, with limited, there's limited resources in the environment, there's limited mates. And so individuals um, evolve to compete for access to those limited resources and limited mates. Mm. And that's just as true as a, a, of us humans as any other species and i think it's often what's going on in depression that there's some kind of adversity and there's conflict and the question is how do you resolve that conflict in your interest well one way is physical formidability if you're physically strong hmm. and so if there's a conflict and you happen to be a physically strong person you have the ability to make physical threats and get access to the resources that you need, just as we see in other species. Uh, we see this in humans too, that people use their physical formidability to their advantage to, to get what they need in situations of adversity and conflict. Um, so there's a well-known sex difference in depression. Women are about twice as likely to get depressed as men uh, the prevalence of depression in women is about twice as twice what it is in men. And uh, many, many years ago, I had the idea that this might be due to the sex difference in physical formidability. Um, upper body strength is a really good predictor of fighting ability. Hmm. And there's almost no overlap in upper body strength between men and women. Almost all men are have greater upper body strength than almost all women. There's only about a 10% overlap there. So I had the idea that the sex difference in physical formidability might explain some of the sex difference in depression because men would more often be able to use their physical formidability to resolve conflicts in their favor. So we got a large nationally representative data set that had grip strength, which is a good index of upper body strength and depression. And indeed, when we um, 
control for upper body strength, most of the sex difference in depression disappears. So what this means is that the, the sex difference in depression might not be a sex difference in depression. It might be um, a difference in physical formidability. Uh, once you control for upper body strength, we don't see any difference or very little difference between the sexes in depression anymore. So this is consistent with our view that um, depression is often comes about when you can't resolve conflicts in your favor because you don't have physical formidability or other social resources that you need to do it. So why be depressed in that case? And this is where the suicidality might um, kind of give us a picture here of what's going on. Um, even if you're not physically strong, you are very valuable to others as a potential mate, as a potential provider of resources, skills, talents. So if you're in a social conflict and um, it's a very severe one that is threatening your biological fitness severely, um, and you don't have the physical formidability to resolve that conflict in your favor, what can you do? Well, you're still valuable. You're valuable as potentially a brother or a sister or parent or child. Um, and maybe we can think of the, the case of um, where we have focused in parent-child conflicts. Um, there's often conflicts between especially these teenage girls and their parents. And there's all kinds of conflicts over um, mating and resources and investment in the family versus investment in your own you know, you're beginning the transition from childhood to adulthood, mm -hmm. and that can involve all kinds of conflicts with family members over, are you investing in the family? Are you kind of investing in yourself? Um, what are you doing there? And uh, your parents have a lot of power that you don't have. They're physically more formidable than you are in many cases. They're also socially and economically more powerful. So what power do you have to influence your parents uh, to make changes that might benefit you uh, to resolve the conflicts that you're having with them in your interest. Um, and this is work I've done with Kristen Syme, my former graduate student, now professor herself. And what we've been looking at is that the power that a child has over their parent is that is their parent's biological fitness. <laughs> Parents are trying to reproduce and the kid is is the the reproduction there so by putting by threatening their own lives you are threatening your parents biological fitness severely hmm. um if you don't make changes that i need you to make um i have the power to take my own life um and so we have now quite a bit of evidence that suicidal threats and suicidal behaviors indeed rise out of these conflicts often family conflicts and this would only work if you don't actually kill yourself. Yeah. So you need to make a credible threat. You need to do something where you actually are put, genuinely putting your life at risk, but where you have a very good chance of surviving as a way of letting your social partner, be it your parents or a romantic partner or whoever, um, that if they don't make changes um, that help you, um, you may end up killing yourself, which would be very harmful to them. And so that's what we, we see, and, and that really fits the pattern that uh, when we look in young people, especially the number of suicide attempts vastly exceeds the number of suicide completions. 
um, again, strongly signaling, and we call this uh, either what we call a bar, it's kind of like a labor strike. Uh, you know, in, in labor disputes, uh, the workers can say, we're going to stop working until you increase our salaries. Hmm. And we're saying that these suicide threats are kind of analogous. Uh, we are going to put our lives at risk and therefore your biological fitness at risk if you don't make changes that uh, make the situation better for us. Yeah. Fascinating. I know we're getting towards the end of the conversation and you know, a couple of things came to mind um, over the last few minutes when you were you were speaking there. I mean, one is um, I, I had a, a guy, Mark Scholes, on the show a couple of weeks ago, and he is a he was the director of the Harvard studio, uh, uh, Harvard study of human development, I think it's called. And this book, I think it's called something like a, the good life. And it's, it's followed people for 80 years about trying to determine what makes a thriving life. And the big conclusion from that research was good relationships. And he had this, uh, concept that he spoke about during our conversation called social fitness and how like we would like, I love your analogy about physical pain and how it's a signal to stop doing something. And his view of social fitness, like physical fitness, is is someone's social network and the quality of their relationships and how that is a, a really good indicator generally of how well your life is going. Um, so I know we're you know kind of theorizing as to potential pieces of advice and guidance, but that was one that came to mind just when you were speaking about anxiety and depression. And given that we're you know close to the end of the conversation, and I know, I think you've done a good job giving the caveat that this is a right now a uh, hypothetical new framework for looking at a whole host of human ailments and, and problems. But let's say in time, you are increasingly persuaded by this framework, and you think the evidence supports that idea you know, you're, you live in this country like I do. When, when you look around at the future of mental health care and the really maybe a paradigm shift that's necessary to sh change the way we think about um, how we have thriving lives. And, you know, uh, this was coming to mind when you were speaking as well, like in my own phases of life that were uh, had more moments of depression the seduction of the depression is often don't do the thing you actually need to do to get well, whether that's exercising, whether that's getting out of bed and pushing yourself, whether it's challenging yourself in a variety of different ways. You know, that's a long statement there, but just for yourself and thinking about where this could go and where how it might change our culture and just the general paradigm that we might have towards living a good life and averting unnecessary human suffering, specifically depression, and anxiety, where do you think that might be heading um, from, from your vantage point? Well, I think Mark's got a really good insight there about the quality of social relationships. And I think what I would add is, um, based on my approach here, assuming everything works out, is um, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. That mm. We really know that if you are depressed, you have suffered adversity and you're experiencing social conflict in many cases. And so what my approach would be is we need to think about how to um, prevent a lot of these adversities. So some of them, I bet a lot of them uh, could be averted. 
Um, so if we begin to alert folks that, um, you know, we're all going to suffer adversities. People are going to die. We're going to get dumped. Um, we may have troubles at work, but we can begin to really realize that our psychological distress could really escalate very dramatically and very quickly. And so we could begin to be aware of that and begin to think about, okay, you know, what, what am I going to do? How do I avoid these kinds of things uh, to begin with? Um, so I think a lot of work in avoiding adversities in the first place and realizing that there are inherent conflicts of interest in life. Um, mm. So, uh, and uh, how you might begin to resolve those in many cases and what we, and it's just like when you're bargaining uh, for, you know, buying something, the more choices you have, the less likely you're, you're stuck on relationships with a single person. So mm. um, always, you know, thinking about having, if, if my relationship goes south here, do I have other relationships and beginning to nurture other relationships? So you always have other choices. So beginning to strategize about how to avoid adversities in the first place, how to avoid conflicts in the first place, um, the ways that you can resolve those conflicts in your interest, um, maybe by having multiple options, multiple choices, outside options uh, in various kinds of relationships. And, um, you know, big, big social policies. We know there's a lot of inequality in the United States right now. Um, and maybe it's kind of exacerbations of social inequality and economic inequality. So, you know, better safety nets for people. Um, there may be, you know, big societal things that could could help here that when people do suffer adversities, um, there are programs in place to help them. So if my mom and my dad died, wasn't stuck on her own trying to figure out how to do everything, if there was kind of a pre-existing uh, system for helping older people, because older people, their, you know, their husbands and wives are going to die. That's a given. Um, and that means all the things that they were relying on them for aren't going to be there. And if there was kind of established social programs for stepping in, um, those could help those folks, just to, to give an example. So I think there's all kinds of things that we can do in the, with the basic philosophy of, of an ounce of prevention here. It could be worth a pound of cure. Um, that would be That would be my prescription. Yeah. I think it's a Charlie Munger line where it's it's slightly tongue in cheek but he says wisdom is prevention. That's yes. the that's the that's the basis of wisdom. That's a good and one. And I may be jump, jumping the gun on this as well but my hunch Ed, is you're probably right about many of the things you said. Um thank so you. I want to I want to thank you for the uh the conversation obviously but also the the new way of thinking about this that Again, I think you did a good job in um, giving proper caution to the uh, the need for more evidence to perhaps come in here. But uh, I think it's a great way to you know begin to maybe think slightly differently about uh, the world of mental health and health in general, which is important to every person. So thank you so much for your work. It was wonderful to do this. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Keep Talking. If you're finding value in this podcast, please consider supporting the show via the links below on Venmo, PayPal, or Patreon. Your support helps to make these conversations possible.